Thanks for listening to a little more conversation. I'm Ben O'Hara Byrne. Tonight, we search for the best movies to set a spooky mood for you this Halloween, and we find out some sweet secrets, including how much Canadians plan to spend on Halloween candy this year, why we choose the candy we do, I'll give you a hint, it's what we like, and that all-important question, how many pieces of candy should you give to each trick-or-treater? There is some consensus on that one. Census data released this week shows a fast-growing number of Canadians have no religious affiliation, while those identifying as Christian has fallen by 20% to just over 50% in the past two decades. We find out why so many in this country are losing their religion and where they may be finding spiritual fulfillment instead, and what it means to be an increasingly secular country. But first, the province of BC has said no to backing an Indigenous-led bid for the 2030 Winter Olympic and Paralympic Games in Vancouver and Whistler. We hear from a sports economist who specializes in the economics of the Olympics about why history shows that hosting the Games often comes with promises of gold, but usually delivers something else. Anger and disappointment today from those behind an Indigenous-led bid for the 2030 Winter Olympics and Paralympic Games uh, to be held in Vancouver, Whistler, and Sun Peaks. You'll remember, of course, uh, Vancouver hosted the 2010 Games. It hasn't been that long, but there was an idea that you could bring them back, use a lot of the existing uh, infrastructure that was already there, and host them again. But the province of BC announced on Thursday that they would not support the bid led by four First Nations, the Canadian Olympic Committee and the Canadian Paralympic Committee, as well as the City of Vancouver and the Municipality of Whistler. Minister for Tourism, Arts and Culture said, and sports said the government cannot justify the $1.2 billion in direct costs and the $1 billion in liability risk at a time of concerns. There's lots of concerns about other things out there like housing, healthcare, public safety and more. The city is also hosting some big events between now and then, the Invictus Games that Prince Harry is involved with uh, for Wounded Warriors. That's coming up in 2025 in Vancouver. And of course, North, uh, North American host city for the 2026 World Cup as well. Um, but amongst the four First Nations supporting the bid who say they did not get a chance to hear the province out about why they decided to go this way and also make their case, um, it is disappointment wrapped in no small amount of disrespect. Here's Chief Jen Thomas of the Silvertooth Nation and Squamish First Nation Councillor Wilson Williams. This is 10 step backwards in reconciliation. The province has to step up now and, you know, build that trust, build that relationship with us. We didn't come to the table asking for a blank check. We were giving terms of this ain't the right time. When will be the right time for Indigenous peoples to be at the forefront in this so-called spirit of reconciliation. Well, now the door isn't completely shut, but it's pretty much a done deal if the province is not going to back this. Uh, First Nations leaders say they're still open to pursuing a bid to host uh, the 2030 Olympics, maybe 2034, but again, they need the uh, provincial government to be involved. But if past is prologue, the idea of bringing the Winter Games back to Vancouver, no matter who is leading the bid, the fact that it may actually benefit the city is probably pretty debatable. And that's just because in the past, they haven't. Most Olympic Games promise gold and deliver bronze or less. So regardless of the reconciliation aspect of the bid, what this is really about is hosting the Olympics, right? Is it worthwhile? Does it make sense to spend that money? Does it make sense to spend taxpayers' money on hosting the Olympics? I mean, there are other ways to pursue reconciliation, obviously. And there should have been more consultation here, I agree. But does it make sense economically to bring the Games back to Vancouver 20 years after the city had them? 
Well, joining me now with more on that, this is perhaps the foremost expert on that question. Andrew Zimbalist is a professor of economics at Smith College in Massachusetts. He's also the author of several books on the economics of the Olympics, including Circus Maximus and Rio 2016. Thanks for your time. My pleasure. So uh, it's not surprising that cities look ahead to Olympic Games and feel like hmm, that, that could be something interesting. So Vancouver was looking at a 2030 bid just 20 years after they last hosted it. It was Indigenous-led, so it would have been a groundbreaking uh, achievement if they had hosted the Games. But the province thought it's going to be too much money. Uh, are you surprised that a city would want to bid again on the Olympics so soon after hosting them? Well, the reason why cities often bid is because the politicians are approached by construction and development interests who would get massive contracts. And so it's it's never really surprising that a city would say that they're interested in doing it. Uh, it, it is surprising that cities would expect to uh, have have a positive economic outcome because the scholarship on on, on the matter suggests that Except under very very special conditions, it's it's a it's a loss event to host either the summer or the winter Olympics. When you look at a city that hosted it so recently, I imagine some of the uh, infrastructure costs would be less because so much of the, so many of the facilities are already there. Would that make a difference? Do you think? Of course, yes. Yeah. the The infrastructure costs would be less, and that certainly makes a difference. Nonetheless, some of the existing facilities would have to be renovated. There are some new sports. In, in the Winter Olympics, so there would have to be some additional facilities that weren't necessary in 2010. You need an Olympic village. Vancouver ran into a lot of trouble with the financing of its Olympic village for 2010. Uh, and who knows whether that would happen again or not. That's largely a function of what's happening in financial markets, and it's very hard to predict that. Uh, they need a media village as, as well. Uh, there'll be other infrastructural costs. Uh, there'll be uh, very large security costs that often are not reckoned into the into the operating budget. Uh, and of course, the IOC always requires that the host government, whether it's the city or provincial government, um, guarantee that all of the elements that are talked about in the bid venues and all of the transportation infrastructure and the hospitality, that all of that is guaranteed by the local governments. And if the existing budget is insufficient, then the government has to engage in cost overruns and cost overruns are legion in, in these matters. So it's 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 it sounds to me like a, a prudent measure or move by by the Vancouver government to say this is too costly and too risky for us. Yeah, the province. I think the city has supported it for at least uh, the previous administration did. And then the province came in and said, we don't want the $1 billion in liabilities and we don't want the $1.2 billion in expenses. Um, When you look at at, at the benefits, and I remember being in London for the 2012 Olympics, which was interesting because a lot of people said, well, you know, London attracts lots of tourists in the summer anyway. It didn't need the Olympics. In fact, if anything, it emptied out the city of tourists because people just avoided going because they thought it would exactly. be too packed. Is that something that, that, that every city runs into the – like, what are the benefits really when you look at it uh, objectively to hosting a, an Olympics, Olympic game? Well, let's, let's talk about London for a moment because I think it's, it's exemplary of the kinds of issues that, that cities run into. London actually experienced a 5% decrease in its international tourism during during 2012. Uh, and the reason for that is that the normal tourists tend to stay away because they're, they're afraid that there's going to be too much congestion. They're concerned about higher prices and, and difficulty in, in, in renting rooms. 
Uh, and some people are concerned of a heightened risk of, of terrorism or other untoward physical events. So it's not uncommon at all for the normal tourists to stay away, for the Olympic tourists to come in. And, and how those two numbers will balance each other out is not known ahead of time. There are some there are some cities that had a larger influx of, of tourism connected to the, than the tourism that was pushed away because of the Olympics. And by the way, very often local residents will also leave because they want to avoid the same things that the, the tourists, the normal tourists would avoid. Um, so you don't know ahead of time whether there's going to be a, a modest increase in net tourism or a modest decrease. And it's very hard to, to depend upon that. A lot of some it's, it's not at all uncommon for new hotels to be built um, on, on the hopes that there'll be enough thrust from the initial 17 days of the Olympics, not only to fill the hotel during those days, but it'll carry them forward. But very often hotels are built and, and then they go bankrupt or they're, they're sold for much less money. Uh, now, the other thing, of course, that's true about London is that the people who were in London as tourists in 2012 were there to watch the Olympic Games. They weren't there to go to Buckingham Palace. They weren't there to go to the Tate Gallery or the National Museum. They weren't there for the typical tourist, tourist attractions of London. And, and you, you, could, you could read, if you go back and look at the newspapers during the summer of 2012, uh, you can read that the the, the 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 downtown area, the Piccadilly Circus area, the, the theater area was was basically a ghost town. Oh, the it restaurants, was. restaurants, <laughs> restaurants were so you don't have to read about it. You were there. Yeah. Uh, and so what what does that mean in the long run? In the long run, what it means is that the, the single best mechanism to advertise your city for tourism is to have tourists go there and then go home and talk to their friends, neighbors, and relatives to tell them what a great time they had um, going to the National Galleries or what a great time they had going to uh, London Theater and what a great, what, how much better the, the food is at the restaurants. And so, but that kind of message doesn't happen after the 2012 summer. The, the people who go home say, oh, I saw a wonderful swimming race, a thousand meter swimming race, mm -hmm. or I saw a wonderful road race or, or what, ha what have you. Uh, and none of that, of course, will be there the following summer for other tourists to 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 enjoy. And so and so as a city loses its best mechanism for promoting long term tourism when it hosts the games. So the notion that there's this boon and, and great advantage because they're they're on the world stage uh, doesn't doesn't often play out. And in fact, the econometric scholarly evidence suggests that it's it's not something to rely upon. And rather, a large, a large debt, a financial debt, plus additional problems which have to do with maintaining the facilities once they're built, uh, and the fact that facilities, particularly in downtown Vancouver, certainly not at Whistler Mountain, but the downtown facilities, they're going to have to be maintained. And while they're being maintained, they're occupying scarce urban real estate, which could be used for other purposes. The notion that you, you're getting put on the world stage and therefore there's going to be more investment and more trade in your community that simply just doesn't it doesn't play out it hasn't happened empirically there are a couple of cases that uh, arguably are exceptions um but it's it's certainly not a typical situation and one of the things i always struck me and i grew up in montreal as i was telling you and you know we know all about the economics of the olympic games in that city what strikes me as odd is that you know the olympics are held every two years, the winter, then the summer. And yet over all this time, these 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 same stories continue 
to perpetuate about, you know, a shot in the arm for your, for the economy puts us on the world stage. I mean, I've heard these stories, whether it was in Beijing in 2008, whether it was in London in 2012, even in Montreal back in 76. Uh, why do those, why do those stories continue to, uh, to spread? Do you think? Well, because the, the, the people that are trying to promote the Olympics and those people of course are the IOC. And usually there's a coalition of business interests in the city that's attempting to host uh, that come primarily from the, the construction industry and, and uh, developers in the city. But sometimes there'll also be a bank that's going to float, float the bonds. Uh, sometimes there's going to be some, some law firms that are going to work with uh, the legal aspects of hosting. Uh, sometimes there might be some ar- architectural firms. So you have a coalition of interests uh, in, 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 in whose interest it is to host the games, because they're going to get billions and billions of dollars of contracts that they otherwise wouldn't get. So they go to the politicians and they convince them and they use arguments like that, that you're going to be on the world stage, that you're going to attract tourism uh, into, into the indefinite future and so on and so forth. This is all part of the sell the sell of the of the this sales job of, of the Olympic Games, uh, and and it will continue to be used, uh, even though I think increasingly it is uh, being looked at skeptically because of past experience. Yeah, when you look at um, when you look at what's happened of late, there seems to be fewer and fewer places bidding for the games, which must signal there's a, there's a problem. Yeah, if you go back to the late 1990s or the early years of this this uh, century, you see that there are four, five, six, seven, eight, nine cities that want to bid to host either a particular winter or summer games. Uh, what you see in the last 10 years is that the, the the number of cities that are in the final stage trying to, to win the bid tend to be one or two. Um, sometimes you'll start out with three or four or five, but by the time the final bids are due, it's it's been whittled down to to one or two. In the case of the 2030 games, uh, we we know that Salt Lake City has expressed an interest, and we know that Sapporo, Japan, has expressed an interest. Uh, Vancouver would have been the third, uh, but it seems pretty unlikely that it would be Salt Lake City because the people who are organizing the games for for Los Angeles in 2028 don't want to be sharing the stage and, and particularly sharing domestic sponsorship money uh, with with games that are going to be happening two years later. And that leaves Sapporo and, and this, the status of that bid, I think, is still a little bit uncertain. The The IOC has run into this problem time and time again. The, the Winter Olympics uh, that will happen in 2026, uh, they're going to happen in Milan. Milan and Cortina have come together uh, to to win that bid. Uh, several cities had dropped out of the bidding. And in, in the last days, the IOC said there were two bidders. There was, uh, th- there was the, the bid coming out of Stockholm and the bid coming out of Milan. Right. The, the fact of the matter is that the Stockholm City Council had said that they're not willing to sign the pledge that all cities have to sign, which is that they'll cover any cost overruns. Um, and, and because the Stockholm City Council had said that, it was clear that the IOC would never give the Olympics to Stockholm. So they said, they like to say that there was two bidders at the end, but really there was only one. There was Milan Cortina. Uh, and Milan Cortina is an interesting case because those those two places are over 200 miles apart. Uh, and and the, the, Cortina doesn't have an international airport. And so the, the transportation uh, between them is, is going to be complicated and expensive to organize. 
So for 2030, Vancouver might have had a decent chance, even though the 2028 games are in L.A., but uh, ultimately the province said, you know, <laughs> no thanks. So, I mean, that's uh, that's going to be, I think, a problem for the IOC going forward. Thank you so much for your time. I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, since by the time we hit the air on Monday, Halloween will probably be almost done. I mean, let's be honest, the trick-or-treating will be all but done in most places. Maybe not quite here in BC, but it will be done in most places. And maybe you'll be curling up to watch a movie or something. But it is a Monday night. It's a school night. It's a work night. So maybe not. So we thought we'd get a little bit of a jump on it this year and try and talk about it tonight instead. Now, heading into Halloween weekend is always a really great time to catch up on some really great horror movies or scary movies or suspenseful movies or whatever you need to get into that spooky Halloween mood. Um, so we thought we'd get you some suggestions. So we think there will be uh, a lot of people who might want to curl up on the couch this weekend, watch some horror movies and get themselves into the Halloween spirit. My first choice, because as a child, it absolutely petrified me the first time I watched it is this one. For generations, the Thorns have been a family of tremendous wealth, position, and power. The perfect marriage of Ambassador Robert Thorne and his wife, Catherine, was fulfilled by the birth of their son, Damien. And then, when the child was five years old, something terrible happened. Then it happened again. Was it an accident? Was it murder? Was it a coincidence? Or was it an omen? Look at me, Damien. It's all for you. Ah, the omen with Gregory Peck from all the way back in the, uh, was it 77? I think it was 77 or 76. So what makes for a great Halloween horror flick? And how about some suggestions that perhaps you hadn't thought of for this year? Joining us now, returning to talk movies, is Kevin Martin. He's the owner of the Lobby DVD shop in Edmonton. Kevin, thank you so much. Welcome back. Well, thank you for having me on. And might I say for the record, what an amazing, amazing opening movie clip to go with. 1976, The Omen, my birth year, my friend. That well, brings back so many memories, and uh, nobody will beat the original Omen with Gregory Peck. That thing is that beautiful. Omen. Oh, it is. It is. And I, I was always trying trying to explain why why it was so good. Why movies of that era were so eerie and so like you could feel your kind of the hair on the back of your neck stand up. And I guess it's because there was no CGI, there was no special effects really. It was just all this kind of. There was something about the mood that they set the music to. I mean, The Omen is such a such a truly creepy film. Oh, my goodness. You know, it's funny. With the music, I think it was Jerry Goldsmith did the music for The Omen. And uh, I, I kid you not, prior to coming on your show, I was drinking a couple of scotchy booze and <laughs> watching some old classic 1960s uh, Twilight Zone. And half of the music done was by Jerry Goldsmith, who did the music for The Omen. And uh, I'm like, my goodness, this is fantastic. And uh, I've definitely, uh, in the last few weeks, been resorting back to going to the old black and white uh, stuff that even was before my time. Going like, I, I want to get the season. I want to see some old school stuff, even older than my typical old school stuff. But um, it's crazy you pick The Omen because The Omen is just unbelievably good. Like, 
it's it's one of those movies we 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 take for granted and we're like, hey, have you guys ever seen The Omen? Because I get this conversation in my video store a lot, and they're like, oh, you mean one of Liv Schreiber? I'm like, no, no, the original, 1976. Let's go with that. And uh, yeah. God bless. That's why I slept out of my store around to remind remind the younger generation, like. Look, whatever you think you like is based on something much older and much better. So check out the original. But yeah, uh, I guess the the Omen ran into some problems because they they turned it into a franchise. The other ones weren't very good. I mean, the second one was okay, but they they didn't the get better. Second one was Let's okay. That, that elevator scene, yeah. that elevator scene, the second right. one traumatized me That's as a good. child as well. <laughs> that was a that was a heavy duty shot. If you've seen the movie, listeners, you know exactly what we're talking about. My goodness, like like bodily bisection by elevator. It was it was terrifying. Absolutely terrifying. Yeah, it was, it was. And I guess at that time too, there were so many movies like The Exorcist and so on that people I mean, I remember at the time they were sort of they weren't treated very seriously. And yet when you look no. back at that era, um, those were some of the best movies of the seventies, right? I mean there were a lot of good movies in the seventies, but they're considered to be now classics of a of, of oh. you know, period. Well, you got to think about it this way. Movies that were not treated seriously back then, whether it's late 70s or early 80s, were like kind of fashion. Fashion that was maybe not as nearly as accepted, but now, do you not see some of the younger generation rocking the exact same clothing that was relatively uh, obscure in the late 70s, early 80s, and they're rocking it now? And I feel the same way with the, uh, the younger generation that comes into my video store, where, and God bless them, they're like, look, Kev, uh, we love the eighties as much as you do. So we just want to like, let you know, it's not just because you're old that you love them and it reminds you of your childhood. It's because they were the better movies and truly they were. And if there was no other point approved to make that fact a reality, it's everything we grew up with in that era has been remade over and over again. And why are they remaking it? Because they can't think of any other better ideas. I mean, there are exceptions to the rule, but for the most part, I'm telling you straight up, baby love, before CGI, those practical effects, those horror movies of that era, they were the jam, and they still are the jam, even to the kids that were not even a twinkle in their parents' eyes at the time. It's, it, is, it is remarkable. So on that note, what, yes. uh, what are some of the one movies you might recommend this year that mightn't be? I mean, people know some of the real gems, uh, the popular ones yeah. from back, back then. But what might you recommend from that, from those, uh, maybe any era for that matter? Well, it was funny. I was thinking about it because, you know, I think we did this talk last year. And obviously we went through the, the obvious classes. We went to the, the Halloweens and the Things and the maybe Invasion of Body Snatchers or Psycho. But let's go a little bit more. Uh, let's, let's dig deeper, shall we? And speaking of the era of the omen from 1976, let's jump a year ahead to 1977 and let's go with The Sentinel. Now, The Sentinel was was directed by John Borman. He made uh, Deliverance, one of my favorite movies. Unfortunately, he also made The Exorcist 2. We don't talk about that movie at all. But The (laughs) Sentinel, yeah, that never (laughs) happened. But The Sentinel. I'll tell you, if you are looking for a spooky, like, creepy kind of apartment house kind of vibe, Amityville Horror, so check it out. It's 1977. She's a young model. She's not quite committed to move in with her agent boyfriend yet, played by Chris Sarandon, better known for Fright Night, Child's Play, and Bordello of Blood. But instead, she needs her own place. So the real estate agent says, Hey, we got this lovely apartment building near Central Park. It's beautiful. But don't mind the creepy blind priest staring at the window with a giant crucifix. 
it'll be fine. And maybe, just maybe, that building might be a gateway to hell. And it is a movie that is, it, it's, it boggles my mind. And to be 100% honest, I'm 46 years old. I only discovered The Sentinel about 20 years ago. And I was like, holy Jesus. Like, this movie is like, the first time I ever heard a reference was in the Tom Hanks film, The Burbs, from 1989, which I love The Burbs. And, uh, yeah, it it is a building. It is a movie, sorry, about a woman moving into a building. uh, She still wants her independence. uh, But she might have moved into the wrong building. And uh, the neighbors are a bit weird. And the neighbors are ironically played by some relatively well-known actors at the time, including Murgis Meredith, uh, you know, who played Mickey from the Rocky films, uh, Beverly right. D'Angelo from the National Lampoon's movie. And, um, man, that movie, to this day, I it's recommend sensitive. to people that have never heard of it. And they watch it like, oh, my God, what did I just watch? I'm like, you watch Brilliance. That's exactly <laughs> what you watch. And it's amazing. <laughs> Oh, and, yeah. and you know what? Real quick, oh my God, uh, cinephiles on the uh, the radio are going to be like, Kevin's totally screwed up. Like, you're right. It wasn't John Borman. It was Michael Winner, and he's the guy Michael that made Winter, all the right. Death. That's right. He made all the Death Wish sequels, not the original right. Death Wish, but all the canon film ones. Yeah. Um, the Sentinel is as far as un like un uh, unappreciated uh, underdog movies. Please watch The Sentinel. It is fantastic. Yeah. If you want to see a movie that's scary for perhaps some of the wrong reasons, I highly recommend, though, you do watch a John Borman movie called Zardoz. Uh, with Sean. Oh if you want to see Sh- Sean Connery in, in underwear with a ponytail. So do you think one. Do you think when when, uh, when Sasha Baron Cohen made uh, Borat, he yeah. saw Zardoz and was like, he must have. That, that's going to be my bathing suit. That is literally going to be my bathing suit. It's the night of the senior prom. The Bates High School gym is alive with excitement. Everybody is there, even Carrie White, the girl no one likes. Oh, sorry about this incident, Cassie. It's Carrie! And everyone makes fun of her. The girl who lives in that creepy house with her crazy mother. see the sin of her days and ways show her that if she had remained sinless the curse of blood would never have come on her the girl with the strange power if i concentrate hard enough i can move things carrie there's another one for you Kevin Martin's with us this half hour. We're talking about uh, Halloween movies. He's the owner of the Lobby DVD shop in Edmonton. So I, Carrie is another great one. That, I, I love that movie. When I, I love love is a tough word, isn't it? <laughs> I enjoyed that no. movie when it came out. <laughs> it's beautiful. You know what? It, it, it's, it's so it's so true to this day. I mean, honestly, uh, no word of a lie. Today at the video store, I had some young uh, ladies. Uh, I want to say they were twelve to fourteen years old. With their mother come in and their father, and they they literally specifically asked for Carrie. And I said, "Oh, are you guys looking for the?" Uh, you know, I, I just I I unassumably assumed uh, the 2013. They're like, "No, we want the 1970s one with Sissy Spacek. We heard it's the yeah. best one." And it they're is. absolutely right. I mean, it really is. It still packs a punch. Brian De Palma nailed it with that movie. Stephen King's yeah. first novel. Stephen King's That's first true. movie turned in from a novel, and it was fantastic. But 
what I want to bring up, I noticed you open up that segment there, the last little bit, with the John Carpenter music uh, from Halloween. Right. And we're not here to talk about like the classics. I think we did it last year. But speaking of John Carpenter, can we talk about John Carpenter's last, in my opinion, great film that a lot of people maybe haven't seen? And that is from the 1990s. And that is In the Mouth of Madness, which stars oh, the amazing. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Now, that yep. stars Sam Neill from Jurassic Park, I, for like your Sam viewers Neill, yeah. to know. Yep. Um, Sam Neill made his American debut in, ironically, The Omen Part 3, where he played grown-up Damien. But In the Mother Madness is what Carpenter considers his last great movie, and I totally agree with him. Um, it is the third of his apocalyptic trilogy, which basically it's the thing, Prince of Darkness, In the Mother Madness. In the end, the only common theme all three movies have running is at the end of the movies, you're like, wow, that was kind of a bummer ending. We don't know what really happened. But if you're an H.P. Lovecraft fan and, and uh, listeners out there, if you know H.P. Lovecraft, you know his work. It's uh, very uh, doom gloom and uh, the old ones. And the In the Mouth of Madness is absolutely fantastic. I, I don't want to go through the entire plot because we only have so much time. But basically... Sam Neill plays a very cynical insurance agent that is assigned to uh, pursue the possible disappearance of a Stephen King type of author, lovingly named Sutter Kane, which is very similar to Stephen King. And he doesn't believe that this guy is missing at all. And he's like, fine, I'll go on your adventure, but it's going to be a big joke. And he gets end up sucked into the world of this Sutter Kane uh, character and the books that he's written because the demand of his new novel is more biblical than, well, the Bible, to be honest. And this movie hit me so hard in the 1990s in the movie theaters. I saw it three times in one week in a movie theater with my buddies. I kept dragging new wow. friends over and over. Like, you have to see this movie. You have to see this movie. And I'm actually talking to you right now, baby love. You have to see this movie. In the Mouth yeah. of Madness, 1994. It is, uh, it's also one of Charlton Heston's last roles, too. He has a big part in it. Uh, it is just simply fantastic. Um, just you, if you're H.P. Lovecraft and a John Carpenter fan, watch In the Mouth of Madness. It might be the sleeper hit of your Halloween weekend. See, it's always what's great is to find things that you didn't know were out there because it's so easy to mm. miss movies sometimes. You know, that's uh, uh, we have Brent in Edmonton who's told us that his favorite 70s, scary 70s movies are the Norless Tapes, which I do not know, but looked it mm. up, and Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, which I have seen actually. That's a, a, a good one. But Don't be afraid of dark. There, there was something special in the 1970s, real quick. I'm yeah. glad I'm glad he mentioned Don't Be Afraid of the Dark because the key with Don't Be Afraid of the Dark is it was one of the many made-for-television horror movies of that era. Right. Now, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark was remade, uh, produced by Guillermo del Toro years later, and it was terrible. It was just junk. Don't, don't watch a remake. But if you were a young child, and it's before my time, but you grew up on the 70s made-for-TV horror movies, Trilogy of Terror, don't be afraid of the dark. Um, Bad Ronald. I'm like, these were like literally made for network television. And you're just like, oh my God, you watch them today. Like, how did they get away with this much They're terror and there. shock back then? It was yeah. almost like the world, as far as, um, I guess, censorship, uh, I don't know if it's the right word, but 
they were a lot more liberal back then than they are now. I'll, I'll, just, I'll just leave it at that. Um, leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, yeah. even Duel, even which I think we talked about last time, Duel was a, yes, Duel was we a great did. movie. And, 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 it's, and, and, you know, Dennis Weaver, it's a made-for-TV movie, too. So there was some real... Some real gems that made it on to uh, to late night or at least prime time, I guess, at the time. I guess they were nine o'clock movies, probably back then. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I mean, I, I hate to be the cynical guy. I, I uh, when it comes to this, I will be the cynical guy. I think television and movies and cinema was completely different in the seventies, eighties, and even the nineties. And we've gotten to the point now where it's all about the bottom line, the almighty dollar, yeah. and creativity is taking a back seat to what will sell and. And like every time I get into arguments or, sorry, heated, aggressive discussions with a lot of my clientele about the state of remakes and, and the genre uh, uh, horror films themselves, it's not about like, look, remakes, there were a many great remakes. We have talked about this in the past. The Thing, The Fly, Kevin, The Blob. H- hold that thought for one minute. We've gone through quite a few. <laughs> the Sentinel, a couple. Uh, Kevin, any other last one? We're, we'll, we'll try it. We'll do a bit of a speed round here of good movies you think that people should see that they probably haven't. Um, Dario Argento was something that kept coming up on my Criterion app today. They've been trying to get me to watch a Dario movie for a long time now. My friend, are you not familiar with Dario Argento? Are, I, I've is, actually, is I've, I've seen, I've seen, I've seen Suspiria. That's it. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. as much as claim as Suspiria gets, I would go with Opera from 1987. It is right. uh, Argento's best movie. I know I'm going to get a lot of hate for saying that, but it is a fact. <laughs> or the lovely movie Phenomena, a.k.a. Creepers, starring a very young Jennifer Connelly, who filmed wow. the movie the same year she filmed Labyrinth with David Bowie. Talk about going from working with Jim Henson to working with creepy insects, Donald Pleasance, God bless, and, uh, you know, a straight-up horror movie with a crazy uh, baboon monkey in it, uh, which is amazing. Um, No, there are so many choices, my friend. And if nothing else, uh, real quick, I might add, I mean, obviously, I just listened to the entire news, uh, uh, the the quick update. This is why horror movies are so essential to us, because – Man, the world is crazy, is it not? And I think the reason why we escape to movies, especially horror movies, is because it's just like, look, I just need a break, man. I need need a a two-hour mental break from the reality of the world. And I tell my customers this all the time, you know, like no no politics, no religion. We're just going to talk movies, and it's a beautiful thing. But uh, you mentioned Argento, so I will say Mm -hmm. opera. You want to talk about some newer stuff? Maybe, 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 well, not even newer stuff, but just stuff that, like, I, I can't keep recommending the classics. So let's – I'll throw out a movie called Splinter at you. Splinter mm-hmm. came out about 15 years ago. No one saw it. It stars the guy that played the brother of Steve Buscemi in uh, Boardwalk Empire and one of the young guys from Road Trip, of all things, Tom Green. And it is basically John Carpenter's thing and a gas station, and it's a body horror movie that Cronenberg would be so proud about. Like, that's that kind of movie that is. Uh, and as far as something newer, my goodness, we talk about John Carpenter and Halloween and Michael Myers. Well, give a chance to a more independent movie like Terrifier. You are, have a phobia of clowns? My goodness. Check out Terrifier and more importantly, Terrifier 2, which I believe is playing in, uh, in theaters uh, this Halloween season. Uh, my goodness, Art the Clown is going to be the new icon of horror. Like, this is a nasty, nasty killer clown <laughs> rummaging the streets on Halloween nights. And uh, whether you like or hate the movie, you will not leave without going, my God, that affected me somehow. 
one way or another. Terrifier. 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 I can't tell you. Terrifier Part 2 is what... This is the independent movie that could. A movie that has completely destroyed the god-awful Halloween ends that opened up a couple weeks ago in theaters. I don't want to talk about that. You know what, brother? If we had like another hour, I would love to keep rapping horror movies with you, but I know you're on a limited time. So... Gentlemen, ladies, if you're listening, you love the horror movies, you love some slasher goodness, check out, as far as newer movies, Terrifier, and more importantly, Terrifier Part 2, which is now playing in Canadian theaters, only because of the popularity of uh, the fans demanding it opening in theaters. And it's a little movie that could. Isn't it great that that still happens? That people would demand that a movie be put back in theaters these days? And that... This movie is playing in a thousand screens this Halloween weekend, and this movie was shot for two hundred fifty thousand dollars. Which, if you know movies, is like you might as well throw a couple yeah. pennies in a jar. That's all it, it is. Like, yeah. Amazing. God bless. Amazing. Well, as Kevin, as always, it's been a great joy. Have a great Halloween. Thank you for all the suggestions. <sighs> Terrifier for sure. Um, Sentinel. Wait to see it. Get, Sentinel. Brother, Sentinel's, Sentinel's you're a big omen guy. Gotcha. Get on. The, I, I, I'm, I'm heartbroken that we don't have five hours. I really am. I, I, I wish we keep rapping the good rap, and it, it breaks my heart that we can have this once a year. But you know what? If we'll you have any jam about movies, please do. Yeah. Much, we'll much jab, appreciated. We'll jab some more. Get, get ready for Christmas movies. That's coming. Oh, baby, <laughs> love. I've already, I, I got the orders going on. I got the orders going on. Perfect. I'm that guy. <laughs> Perfect. Kevin, have a, have a great weekend. Thank you again. Yeah, thanks. Take care, right? Say, have a good night. Yeah, we're devoting this hour to Halloween because by the time we air on Monday, it'll be a bit late. I want candy. There you go. So it is all about candy because uh, there's a study out there about our candy buying, candy handing out, trick or treating uh, habits this year. And it's pretty fascinating. It answers some pretty interesting questions, as in, why do we choose the candy that we choose? It turns out to be quite self serving. Uh, which mightn't come as much of a surprise. How many pieces of candy do most of us give out to trick-or-treaters when they show up at the door? There tends to be a bit of a consensus on that one, which probably shouldn't be too surprising, but I always struggle with that one a little bit. Um, the cost of candy is up. That come will come as absolutely no surprise, but so is enthusiasm about the celebration this year. Canadians are spending again on Halloween. They want to see people at their front door. They want to see trick-or-treaters. It's time. Even though Monday, it falls on a Monday this year, that's usually a bit of a bad omen, but not not this year. So joining me now with more on this is Sylvain Charlebois. He's a professor in food distribution and policy and the senior director of the analytics lab at Dalhousie University, the food analytics lab at Dalhousie University. And they've just done a study on Halloween. Welcome to the show. Yes, this is the first time we've done a study on Halloween. Actually, the second time, but it is the first time we've looked at the management and candy procurement uh, with households Uh, and just to make things interesting and yes absolutely we've been talking about prices food prices and inflation for so long now Uh, we thought of changing gears a little bit and talk about something that is a little bit more fun and lighter it is i mean the price of halloween candy is up needless to say 13.2 percent but it hasn't stopped people i guess because uh trick-or-treating is sort of back the way it used to be this year, to some extent, yeah. that people are going to spend a lot of money on Halloween stuff this year. Apparently, yeah. So uh, the average household will be spending twenty-two dollars and forty cents uh, wow. on Halloween candy. Which, well, households will be spending a lot of money on Halloween, but for candy specifically, it's about twenty-two dollars and forty cents, which is actually quite encouraging. Yeah. 
Given the fact that this this year's Halloween is actually on a Monday night, we just actually went through two supposedly lucrative Halloweens, Saturday and Sunday nights, uh, with no school. However, it it was during COVID, so uh, you know to guess how many kids would show up at your door was very difficult. There was a lot of waste, actually. Even retailers actually wasted a lot of candies because uh, demand was down. Demand yeah. was down. Yeah, and it, even if you remember in 2019, there was the disaster in Montreal. Montreal canceled Halloween due to bad weather. That's right, and, and that was that was the worst thing for retailers because on November 1st, they actually you know they make room for Christmas. They make and they actually send back candies the the, the next morning. So that was, and, and a lot of people actually do buy candy at the last minute. So, uh, but this year apparently, I think people should. Be optimistic about Halloween and seeing a lot of trick-or-treaters at their door. Yeah, I've been seeing a lot more decorations this year. People seem to be really into Halloween. And it does yeah. foreshadow holiday spending a little bit. I mean, we don't know. I mean, all the surveys I've read is that holiday spending will be down this year. But Halloween sort of the kickoff of that. So maybe if people are in a joyous yeah, mood, maybe we'll see I a bit so. of an uptick. Yeah. yeah, I think so. I think people are encouraging. And, of course, psychologically, the pandemic is over. I'm not saying that the pandemic is over, but psychologically, you can feel that people are moving on a little bit and they want to do other things and, and live their normal lives. And I think that on Monday night, we're going to see a lot of kids out there, a lot of parents participating. Over half of households are planning to give out candies on Monday, which is actually quite a lot. That is a lot. Uh, you did some really interesting uh, research into this, both the procurement, as you called it, you know, buying the candy yeah. and, and management. Um, I'm as a well. supply chain kind of guy. So exactly. I'm always looking at, <laughs> you know. uh, so, so why do we buy the candy we buy? And you found overwhelmingly it's for one reason and one reason only. Well, going back, so that was the one question we wanted to see whether or not inflation was a factor, right? If price was a factor, and yes, it is a factor, but the number one criteria when people buy candy is whether or not they would eat the candy themselves. Yes. <laughs> Makes sense. Because they, they anticipate demand, and sometimes they, they, they don't forecast it right. So if you have leftovers, why not enjoy eating leftovers? And, and frankly, I think a lot of adults do indulge, in, indulge at Halloween. So it's not just about the kids, but it's about the adults as well, just waiting for trick-or-treaters to come to their doors. Once in a while, you'll eat a candy here and there, and why not? Oh, There's yeah. nothing wrong with that. Oh yeah, my dad had that old one for you, one for me trick down uh, down pat when, <laughs> when I was a kid. When I was a kid, that's an interesting thing. I was really fascinated by because this is something you always ask yourself when you have trick or treaters at the door. You ask people how much candy they give out, how many items they give out. What did yeah. you? Find? Well, so yeah, a good portion actually are quite generous. So if you're sometimes people will actually buy one item per child, so a chocolate bar or a bag of chips or a soda pop or something like that. But uh, sometimes when when uh, when you're going through the evening, you'll end up giving a couple or three, and so we want to see how generous people are. And there's actually more than half of households will give out two or more items, which I thought was interesting. So you can feel that people want to be generous. And let's face it, Ben, as a kid, when you were done with uh, your trick or treating, you always remembered that one or two houses 
where you got that magical chocolate bar you wanted, right? That, that oh, one yeah. thing you wanted and you want to go back next year as much as possible. Yeah, I remember there was one house when I was growing up that gave out actual chocolate bars, not the Halloween-sized one, real yeah. ones. And I mean, yeah. they were the most popular people. That house was forever loved by, it didn't matter what happened. You, were, you, you went know? back a second time, didn't you? <laughs> well, I never, I was never allowed to go back twice, but I wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> but I wanted to. But that's, a, yeah, that's a great, we were actually talking about the houses that, that turn off their lights at Halloween that don't give out candy. When you're a kid, you always remember those and you always remember the ones that give out really good treats as That's well. That's why right? you bring eggs. <laughs> <laughs> They're so expensive these days though. I wouldn't, I, I know, wouldn't, exactly. I wouldn't, I wouldn't recommend that. Uh, you also did a little bit of work into uh, just how long parents let their kids go before they pack it in. As parents, you wonder, okay, so we have a bag. Do we try to fill that bag or do we go with time, an hour, two hours, whatever? And again, it's a split. So some parents are, are looking at one bag. Let's fill out that bag and that's it. That We're done. And, or others actually, you know, many, many parents will go with many bags and say, let's actually fill out uh, our bags as much as possible for an hour or two hours. That's all we got. And so, again, it's split. You also notice one of the things I found interesting, because uh, you asked this question, we talked about food allergies yesterday on the show, was that uh, people do oh. actually pay attention to, or at least 30% of people pay attention to trying to get candies that are um, with allergies in mind. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, as you know, Allergy Canada has a huge campaign with the turquoise uh, pumpkin uh, at Halloween for a reason, because obviously when you go from one door to another, uh, and if you have allergies, it's a problem. So that that 26%, 26% of, of, of buyers, candy buyers, do look for allergens, do look for labels. That's, that's, that's the highest number. Last year, it was actually a little bit less than 20%. So you can oh, wow. see that really there's more people are actually thinking about allergies. Uh, and, and, and frankly, Ben, it's 26% is way more than the actual number of people who have allergies. So you can see that a lot of households are conscious of the fact that we need to be careful with the kind of candy we, we give out. Yeah. The other, the last one that I thought was interesting is you did ask parents uh, how, how many of them what percentage of them go through their kids' candy afterwards to make sure it's safe. Now, in my case, growing up, chocolate bars would disappear during that process. Perfectly safe chocolate bars, I was, as, far as, as far as I was concerned, was sort of my dad's way of... A of, good uh, reason uh, to be suspicious. <laughs> to be suspicious. <laughs> but parents are still suspicious, that, that, right? That's you know? what we call a tax, Ben. It's a parental <laughs> it tax. It is. That's a good way of putting it, actually, now, because right. I, did, I did live rent-free, obviously. Um, <laughs> room and board, you know? But, yeah. but parents are still, obviously, they're still concerned. So parents are going through that candy once, it's, once it, the trick-or-treating is done. Parents will sort through what was picked up to make sure it's all okay. Yeah, I don't know if you saw the National Post. The National Post actually covered our, our study this week and, mm -hmm. uh, and their approach was very much about that. And they, and, and we, they actually looked at news of children being poisoned and, and harmed as a result of a blade in, a, in an apple or a fentanyl yeah. on candy. And I remember all those stories, yeah, for sure. Yeah. And they were, and I didn't know this, Ben, but uh, the reporter, Laura Brohout from, the, from National Post, actually did brought to me uh, a report. Most of these things are urban legends. So the, you got about 84% of parents which will, who will go through all the candies 
And so, and you got 16% who just, you know, they just go with, uh, with the flow and, and that's about it. And I suspect that those are parents uh, of, of older children. Right. Uh, no so, doubt. Yeah. yeah. So that's, but you can see that people are absolutely concerned if, uh, and if you give out apples, yeah. chances are it's going to be thrown out. Yeah. Don't give out apples. Sorry. That's, yeah. that's my, that's the nine-year-old me talking again. Uh, your and, favorite and, and toothbrushes. Yeah, exactly. If you want, if you want eggs, <laughs> give out toothbrushes. <laughs> and your favorite, what's your favorite Sylvain? Yeah. What's, what's your, what's your go-to? Oh, a slam duck Reese's pieces. Yeah. You can't beat those. It's that, what, beat what is yours? I, I, I'm a big, I, I really like, it's kind of boring. I love Kit Kats. I think Kit Kats are great, but you know, it's, it's a bit dull, but uh, Reese's Kat? Pieces. I know. Yeah. Is that disappointing? Really? <laughs> Is that Be disappointing? Canadian, say Coffee Crisp or something. Yeah. Coffee Crisp is also, they're all good. Let's put it that yeah. way. They're all good at Halloween. Exactly. But, all but Reese's Pieces, Reese's Buttercups. Those are good. Come on. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You're yeah. right. You can't beat those. Sidney Chalabois as always. Happy Halloween. Thank you. Happy Halloween. Take care, Ben. For now, though, again, as we mentioned off the top, musically, Canadians are losing their religion at an unprecedented rate, with more than a third of the country reporting no religious affiliation in the latest census, according to StatsCan data released on Wednesday. And while the latest data from 2021 shows that the proportion of non-religious Canadians has more than doubled in the past 20 years, that's up from 16.5 to 34.6, can you imagine? Since 2001, the share of the country that identify as Christian has also shrunk considerably by about 10% per decade this century. Uh, Christians made up 53.3% of the population in 2021, self-identified as such. That's down from 673 in 2011 and 77.1 in 2001. So you can imagine from 2001, nearly three, more than three quarters of the Canadian population identified as Christian. It's now da- up down to just above 50%. This isn't because of anything strange. It's basically demographics. Um, a lot of younger Canadians don't identify or don't have any particular religious affiliation. And we're seeing that happen, whereas a lot of older Canadians did identify as Christian. Um, and so did their kids. So the boomers do too, to some extent, but less so, and their children even less so. We're, we're seeing that kind of play out through the system or through the census, at least. I thought this was a fascinating phenomenon. What does it mean to become a more secular country, as we are quickly becoming, by the way? Um, And what does it mean to our understanding of different religious communities? How how does a secular country, or a country that is increasingly secular, understand religion, uh, make sense of it, understand those who believe? Because it's important that people do, right? Um, So to help us with that, Joining me now is Reverend Michael Corrin. You may know that name. He's an author, commentator, and longtime contributor to a number of publications here in Canada, including the Globe and Mail, the Toronto Star, and so forth, and in Britain. Uh, Reverend Corrin, thanks for your time tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure. This was an interesting um, result from the census because it, it continued some trends we'd already been seeing, but there was a lot of attention paid to the changing uh, religious makeup of this country. What did you make of it? Well, I wasn't at all surprised. I was surprised that people were surprised. Right. Because, um, I mean, a lot of it's generational. And my wife and I have four children. I've seen how they've adapted to various uh, religious ideas. Uh, immigration is obviously an issue, too. I mean, it's no, it, there's no surprise that uh, religions such as Islam and Hinduism have grown. They're still not huge, but it's immigration-based, and that's understandable. 
Um, and they're also cultural. I think people would often say they were of a certain religion, even if they weren't particularly practicing, which is still the case to a certain degree, I would argue, with Catholicism. I mean, we have four children. They were all raised Catholic. I would say two of them will probably still say Catholic on a census, but they would never go to church. One wouldn't. Uh, one certainly wouldn't. I would venture in, in 20 years' time, not sure if I'll still be alive, but I think the numbers will be shockingly low in terms of Christianity. It's about, what, 53% now. Yeah. I, I think they'll be lower still. I see it as a great opportunity in Christian terms, but I'm not surprised. And the number of people who identify as secular, I mean, it's very broad, isn't it? Secular, humanist, or atheist. Mm-hmm. That's doubled. Well, I don't know how many would say they were they aggressively denied the existence of God. I think a lot of those people would simply say, I don't know, and I don't really even care very much. Actually, indifference is the real challenge though, to people of faith. Um, it's not opposition. It's indifference. And there is a lot of that. Also, um, those numbers are reflected in the US too, and to a certain degree in Europe. Look, the public face of Christianity, and that's the real issue here, it was 70-odd percent 20 years ago. It's dropped down to just over half. And the re- what we see on TV is often very conservative people. Donald Trump, uh, the conservative riot in this country, anti-vaccination, conspiracy theory, obsession with, with women, uh, opposing women's choice, sometimes homophobia. These are not very attractive aspects of the Christian faith. I don't think they're Christian, but they're certainly elements of the public church. And often the loudest noise is made in the shallowest end of the swimming pool. And the conservative right, with all due respect, does know how to splash a lot. So Christians who follow the Gospels, I think we, we I try to include myself in that, I think we have to do a much better job of presenting Christianity rather than saying, oh, dear, our numbers are reducing. Of course they are. But, you know, the, the early church was, was wonderfully faithful to the, the true teachings of Christ. It was then adopted by Imperial Rome. Before very long, it became persecuting, aggressive, militaristic. I, I quite like the idea of a level playing field where we have to not argue for our faith, but show the merits of our faith by example or witness or, or by, by discussion, rather than just assume that people will be in church on a Sunday. Because in just personal, personal anecdotes, I don't find people any less spiritual these mm-hmm. days. Uh, in fact, if anything, I find people to be more sort of spiritually oriented. They talk about it in different terms, perhaps, than church on a Sunday or identifying with a certain organized religion. But it doesn't feel like there's a lack of spirituality here. Where do you think those energies are now being placed? I think that's a very good point. It's very perceptive. And also people turn to spirituality at times of crisis. For example, after 9-11, we know that uh, um, all sorts of religious institutions were full. And we're going through a time now that is very volatile and in some ways very worrying. So people are looking for some sort of spiritual answer. It used to be new age, which was a generic term, which didn't mean very much, really. Um, all sorts of ideas, whether it be uh, meditation or wicker or, or whatever. Uh, I think people are searching. I don't know if they're aggressively searching, but they're wondering, especially of a certain age. And we've all seen it, those of us who have children, uh, there's that age and stage of immortality. You just have fun and you enjoy your life. And then as you get older, maybe kids come along and the mortgage comes along or the rent. And you you wonder about the deeper issues and you ask questions. So where are those energies going? 
I'm not entirely sure. I mean, there has been a growth. Well, there is growth in certain aspects of Christianity, for example. Um, we have the mega churches. I'm, I'm not a huge fan. I don't think there should be such a thing as a mega church. I think churches should be places where everyone actually knows other people. It should be an extended family. But there has been a growth there. Um, there's a, there is also a growth in a certain type of fundamentalism. Every, we have every answer for every question. Well, faith is a dialogue, and I don't have answers to every question. Why do bad things happen to good people? There's no really good answer to that. Uh, but the fundamentalist groups within Christianity, um, they are picking up numbers or remaining steady. Um, so, yeah, you're right. There is still, there is wonder, uh, there's interest. Uh, but as I said earlier, I, I simply don't think that organized churches or traditional churches have made themselves particularly appealing. Uh, but I, you can remember that there was a time, I, I'm an Anglican, there was a time in England when if you weren't in an Anglican church on a Sunday, um, it may well be that your boss would ask you why on a Monday. Now, that seems, as it should be, a, a different world. I mean, it's just um, Ireland. I, I'm 63. I grew up in Britain. Uh, I knew Ireland well. I mean, Ireland was so Catholic. And even the Irish diaspora, friends of mine in London, they were so Catholic. That's gone. I mean, Ireland now, I, I think it was it half the people are at Mass. I mean, Spain, Quebec, all of these countries that were of, of, a, of a particular faith, it's all changed. So... But but I don't think it's a bad thing that people are questioning. Uh, look at the abuse crises, not just in the Catholic Church. Most, well, most, yes, probably most, certainly many churches. The Southern Baptists are going through this now. We have big big issues in, in Southern Ontario, one, one major church in particular. Jean Vanier, who was an icon. Right, right. I bet Jean uh, Vanier, yeah. Yeah, Ravi Zacharias, I mean, people like this. So, yeah, thank God we are asking questions now. Don't assume people are correct simply because they wear a collar or because they seem to have authority. So you mentioned earlier, uh, Reverend Cora, that you think this is an opportunity, though, that people are out there looking for things. You notice there's obviously, uh, you know, the, the, the health and wellness business has boomed. There's a lot of emphasis on perfecting oneself, on being your best self, for instance, and a lot of focus on the individual these days. And I wonder if that you find that at all uh, concerning or at least, um, you know, perhaps some of the explanation is there. Yeah, and I find it very exciting. I, I'm I'm not intimidated by people who who challenge what I believe or question what I believe. And we, we do live in a post-Christian world. This terminology is thrown around, but I would say I, I didn't grow up in a, in a Christian home. My dad was Jewish, um, and I'm, my parents were secular. They didn't really believe, well. They had a certain belief system, but it wasn't organized in any way. But the the, the context of my upbringing in England was Christian. Uh, Christian festivals and uh, reverence for certain things. Uh, I, and I, I was familiar with certain uh, quotations from scripture. Ask kids today about what they know of the Bible. And a lot of older people might be surprised how little they know. They simply don't know what you mean when you, you, you come out, I don't know, um, whoever's without the sin cast the first stone. I've had kids say to me, oh, what's that? Yeah, they that's just, clever. Yeah. And that's just the way so we have to re-explain but that, that is a that's a good thing because we haven't lived that way I mean, if we if christians had lived this perfect christian life of love and forgiveness and justice and equality and inclusion wouldn't it be awful if people were, were leaving christianity but 
We haven't. You know, the terrible things are being done in the name of organized religion, all organized religion, including Christianity, maybe even particularly Christianity. So no surprise and no disappointment that people have moved away. And I I do think it'll get worse. Well, those numbers will, will be deeper. Um, it, it wouldn't surprise me if in 20 years' time, if I'm still alive to see it, the numbers are down to maybe 35%. Um, that's... Now, where there is growth in Christianity is outside of the Western world. It's right. not in, in North America and Europe. And by the way, it's not in Russia. Uh, when my my father's family came from Russia, and I still have family there, we, I read articles that Russia was deeply religious and part of the invasion of Ukraine was absolute nonsense. There are fewer Russians in church than Canadians on a Sunday. They're not, that, that's not true. Where there is growth is in Africa, and Asia. Uh, you, there are Presbyterian churches in South Korea. You think you're going to a, a sports stadium. Yes. A packed with thousands of people. Um, in Africa, there are Anglican churches where they, they cannot fit people inside the building. There are simply too many people. So there is growth, but it's not growth in Toronto, Montreal, Vancouver, London, and, and Manhattan. It's in other places. The one, and that leads, and that's a perfect segue to my last question. Because one of the things I found traveling a lot and work traveling a lot for work uh, as well, and not being uh, being a very secular person with very little knowledge of religion, is that there then becomes a divide a little bit with the way a very secular country such as Canada is and how we see the world, versus how the rest of the world sees the world. And I'm wondering if if losing a bit of that um, ability to understand faith and belief and, and and organized religion as well, if if there's a deficit there when it comes to trying to talk to and understand other countries on this planet where religion is a much more important part of the social fabric. I think that's very true. Uh, not long ago, just a few months ago, there was a big synod, a collection of, of uh, Anglican leaders representing 85, 90 million people. And one of the most divisive issues was equal marriage, uh, full inclusion of LGBTQ people. And on that issue, I'm very much in favor of by, but I also believe we have to listen to those people who are opposed. I don't mean right-wing North American homophobic people. I mean bishops from Africa and the Caribbean who have a different belief system. Be, and there was this, there were these twin solitudes. There were some people in North America on the left on this issue who said, I just can't believe the way they think. Well, you better start to try it, and, and, because they're not bad people. They, they have a different point of view. It's a more literal interpretation of Scripture, but we have to try and understand it. These people are also often dealing with poverty and war and exploitation and colonialism, so you can't just reject them as that, that they don't understand. They understand more than we do in many ways, but it is a, a different way of thinking. The Islamic world, um, we, I mean, it, it's extraordinary that people know so little, and they, they assume that uh, I was speaking to um, uh, a Jewish friend. One of his hobbies is just traveling. He tries to go to as many countries as he can. And he's always very open about who he is and what he is, not very religious. But And I said, where are the best places? He said, oh, without question, it's been the Muslim world. And I said, are you open about being Jewish? And he said, oh, yeah. I said, what's the reaction? He said, it's lovely. So I've never never had an issue. They're fascinated. They want to learn more. But I bet you if you ask most people about they would, really? Surely they will be angry at you on anti-Semitic. And that's simply not true. 
Um, there are problems in the world. There's intolerance in the world. But I do think that too many people associate religion with intolerance, which it, sometimes that's appropriate, but not always. My golly, I've met a lot of very secular people, atheist people who are deeply intolerant of others, particularly intolerant of those who have faith. Michael Corrin, thank you so much for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Anytime. My pleasure.